All right, Romans chapter 8, we finally, finally get to start this section. Romans chapter 8, all right, we are not going to do, well, we're going to do some review and what has come before it, but um, it all makes sense here in a minute. So go to Romans chapter 8, jump down to verse, where do we want to go? Go down to verse 29. Right? Romans chapter 8, verse 29. What we're going to do here is I'm going to give you, well, I'm going to give you five words, I think, to begin with, and then we're going to add a word at the end of this. But these, I think we're going to call this six words every Christian should know. Um, six words every Christian should know. I should have labeled this part one because this is going to be like 900 years of, of working through this. We'll, we'll probably be done with this in about 2027 because um, this is a controversial section. This is where everyone, this is, what, this is what divides churches, divides denominations, has led to all kinds of problems throughout church history. But what we're going to do is try to understand it in a little bit of a different way, all right? So we probably know the words here that, that creates all the problems, all right? Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 29. You can probably find the first word in almost two seconds. For whom he did foreknow. So write down the word foreknowledge. Write down the word foreknowledge. The word foreknowledge. Now as soon as you start thinking foreknowledge, what does that what image does that bring to mind? Okay, well, okay. It can lead immediately. When you start talking about foreknowledge, people get a little nervous. Now, there are many let make it very clear, within Christianity, who they think foreknowledge explains away the whole predestination thing because they think foreknowledge means something a little different than maybe we will, but we'll, we'll look into that. There's foreknowledge. What's the next word? Everybody see it? For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. So the next word would be predestination. Predestination. Now, second, the second you say the word predestinate or predestination, immediately, what's the next word someone's going to say? Okay, no, it's going to start with a C. Calvinism, right? Now, don't don't write that word down, but that's immediately where it's going to go. You say foreknowledge, you say predestination, and then people are like, "Oh no, are you one of those Calvinists? Do you believe in?" Calvinism, if you are associated with Calvinism, that is immediately grounds for many people to say, nothing to do, I'm done, you're wrong, you're in trouble. And as someone who knows, because I got kicked out of a Bible institute because of quote-unquote Calvinism, and when I taught the singles at the church in Nebraska, I got called from the pastor because one of the parents were upset because you're quote-unquote teaching Calvinism. And it's like, you, it's like, you can't even... What, what is so frustrating is when, when you have a parent of a single, like they're not even in high school anymore, uh, you know, but they're still calling, you know, they're going to, they don't want my kids to be a, exposed to some doctrine that I don't know how to answer. It's just really frustrating because you, uh, you can't read this section without dealing with what subjects? Well, you already know two of them. Foreknowledge and predestination. You got to deal with it because it's where? It's right there. So how many words do we have so far? We have two. All right. We have foreknowledge. We have predestination. What's the third word we come into here? For whom he did foreknow, he also did 
predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, those he also called. There's the next word, calling. Calling. So we have the doctrine of foreknowledge, we have the doctrine of predestination, and we have the doctrine of calling. Okay, what does that mean? What does calling mean? Uh, do we have a correct understanding of calling? Now, what we can say just from reading that text is who gets called? Okay, right. So, now, did that, is that the only call? Are there other calls? I mean, we, we, we can get into all kinds of discussions there, right? So how many words do we have down so far? Three. What's after calling? Justified or justification. Let me write down the word justification. Now, that one's less controversial. That's less controversial. Everybody likes the doctrine of justification. Everybody loves justification. Everybody's good with justification. But they're not good with justification if justification is based off what? Predestination. If justification is based off predestination, people are like, no, 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 no. God doesn't justify those whom he predestinates. No, he justifies those who choose him, right? So, so then people get nervous and, and people get upset. All right, what do we have after justification? We have glorification, right? We have glorification. How many words do we have so far? Five, all right? Okay, we have five. Right, so far, so good. Now, nobody has a problem with glorification, do they? Everybody loves the idea of glorification. Well, when do they have a problem? If it's based off predestination, does God only glorify those whom he predestinates? They don't like that. They don't like, they got to get, they got to get. So what they tend to do is they like the foreknowledge, right? They, they, they can work that into their theology, but they got to get rid of the predestination or they have to somehow destroy predestination by something they do with foreknowledge, right? Now, let, can, now I'm not going to give you the next word. See if you can find the next word. Just continue looking there. See if you can find the next word. There we go. Verse 33. Everybody see it? Who shall, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. This brings in the doctrine of? Election, because if there is an elect, there has to be an election, right? Would that agree? Okay, so what are the six words? Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification, and election. These are words every Christian not only must know, they should definitely understand the significance of these words in church history. They should know all the division and fighting and problems these six words have caused. And just think about it, even the word justification. I mean, the entire Protestant Reformation, in a sense, is, is over that. So each one of these words, glor- what's the issue with glorification? Why is that such a controversial word? Because this seems to, seems to argue that those God justifies, he will glorify, but some people believe that that glorification is not guaranteed because you could lose the possibility of glorification and you could lose your justification. 
So all these words create controversy and problems. So here's what we're going to do. I could just jump in and say, this is the way I could teach it. Hey, foreknowledge. Let's just look at foreknowledge. But we're not going to do that, right? And here's the reason why. These, These words that are used, these six words that we just talked about, they don't just show up magically here, correct? Yes? There's something that comes before it, yes? Something that we spent months working on. Something that I... And you probably thought, why does he keep going back to those same verses over and 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 over? Why? Well, now you're getting ready to figure out why we did all of that work. Because we're going to understand this passage in light of what comes before it, which is what I believe most ignore when they handle this. Because when a preacher is preaching through Romans, and he gets to this section, he just wants to immediately have a sermon on, basically, Calvinism. Either for or against. Well, guess what? It's not like Paul said, stop everyone, stop. Everything that I said before, just forget it. Let's talk about Calvinism. I mean, obviously he wouldn't have used that term, but you get the idea. Obviously, that's not what he's doing. What he's doing here flows from what? Everything that he said before. So I want to point out just some very important, two important concepts that comes before this. All right, everybody ready? All right, here we go. I want to make sure you understand this because I think it's so very important. All right, go back to Romans chapter, or you're already in Romans chapter 8. Go back to verse 18. Remember how much time we spent here? I mean, we spent, I don't know, it seemed like two months right here. Okay, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul speaking, For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Remember what we did with that verse? How did we outline it? Present suffering, future glory. Everybody got that? That we're in the present, there's going to be suffering. But there is a future glory that will be revealed where? In us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. What did we do with that verse? Present waiting, future manifestation. Right? There's a waiting. The, 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 what is waiting? Creation is waiting for What? The manifestation of the sons of God. Why is it waiting? Because creation is going to continue to suffer under the fall until the sons of God are made manifest. And once they are made manifest, then there can be a new heaven and a new earth. But in the meantime, it's just waiting. All right. Verse 20. For the creature or creation was made what? Subject to vanity. Stop right there. All of creation was subjected to vanity, to meaningless, to emptiness. All of creation was. Now, this is very important. Look at the next section. Creation was made subject to vanity. Next two words. Not willingly. Not willingly. And then it says, continue on. Not willingly. Next words. Everyone, because of him who did what? Subjected it. Now, we spent a lot of time. Who is the him there? 
Okay, if y'all don't remember this, then we're going to have to go back and re-preach that entire section for like a twelfth time. Okay, and what the conclusion we came to is, has to be God. Why does it have to be God? No, look at the verse. He subjected it. No, look at the... Subjected it in what? In hope. Adam couldn't have subjected it in hope. Correct? Adam just messed up and brought vanity, brought it all. God subjected it. He could subject it in hope. And how could he subject it in hope? How could he subject it in vanity and hope? How could he do that? How could God subject all of creation to vanity and hope? He knows how it's going to end, right? He's going to bring it back. I want to make sure you hear this. He can subject it in vanity and hope because he knows what he's going to do in the end, right? So this would demonstrate that God has what knowledge? Oh, very good. There we go. All right. He subjected it against the will of creation. Creation didn't have a, 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 had nothing to do with it, right? God is the one who subjected it. What does this demonstrate about God? Okay. Well, the foreknowledge gets the knowing part. If he can come along to creation and uh, against its will, subject it all to vanity, what does that say about God? Say the word again. Sovereign. Right? Someone look up some definitions for the word sovereign. You can look up English de- uh, definitions. Look up whatever you can find. Sovereign. What does the word sovereign mean? Just a basic English definition of the word sovereign. Supreme ruler, okay? Anybody got a different definition? This is absolutely critical. If we, if we don't get this down, we cannot even begin to take apart those six words. Person who has supreme, say those two words again. Power or authority. Would you, would you agree that if God subjected all of creation to vanity not according to the will of creation, that would demonstrate that God has all power and authority. His power is greater than what? The power of creation, they couldn't resist it. He has all authority because he has the authority to do so and no one else could overrule that. Agreed? So why is this, why is this verse so important? Where are we getting ready to get into a discussion about? Foreknowledge, predestination, things that would that are very controversial. The controversy should start right there, but every preacher, I've listened to 50,000 sermons at hyperbole on Romans 8, but you know how many just skip over this and not realize the significance of this? This is where it all starts. Everyone gets upset when you start talking about God's sovereignty and salvation. Why wouldn't you be upset about God's sovereignty of subjecting the entire creation to vanity? That should bother you because all of you have experienced the meaningless emptiness and the vanity of this life. Yes? Okay, everyone should say amen. Who, who, who subjected everything to that? God. And was it according to the will of creation? No. Again, what does the verse say? 
Verse 20, for the creature or creation was made subject to what? Vanity, not willing, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption and to the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, how, how can verse 21 be written? Verse 21 can be written because God has determined exactly what's going to happen to creation. What's going to ultimately happen to creation? It's going to be delivered. In what way? The same way that the the glorious liberty of the children of God. Remember that creation is waiting for the manifestation of the children of God? How can he say that with such certainty? How can Paul write that with such certainty? He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So again, how can it be so certain that creation is going to experience a deliverance? Because the one who subjected it did it so in hope because he had already predetermined what he's going to, he's going to have a new heaven and a new earth. Yes? So what's required for those things to happen? What is required for God to be able to subject creation in vanity, do so in hope, and then tell you exactly that that creation is going to be delivered? How... What's required for God to be able to do all of those things? Not only foreknowledge, power, sovereignty. Well, for him to, it's one thing to say this is how it's going to work and you think it's going to work. He's predetermined that's the way it's going to work. Would would that not be required? Yes? I mean, he's got to know for sure. He's got to make sure it all works that way. Agreed? Right? In the meantime, while we're waiting for that deliverance, what is occurring in the meantime? You start reading about it in verse 22. Remember we identified these? You have the groanings, correct? Do we have not have all the groaning going on? And may we identify the different groanings that occur in all of those verses? Yes? Everybody there? Do I need, do, do, can you pull up all the groanings in your notes? I'm ho- just tell me you can. Because I don't want to go back and re-preach this, okay? But this is so critical, all right? So we got the groanings going on, all right? Then what happens in verse 28? All things work together for good. Now, how can all things work together for good? For everything to work together for good, what would be required for that to happen? Someone has to be controlling it, yes? Yes? I mean, all things don't just naturally work together for good. Now, it's working together for a specific good. Now, remember, that good isn't good that it's going to be good in your life in the here and now. It's working for an eternal good and an eternal glory, yes? Remember we talked about this? Correct? In fact, I have it in my notes this way. I don't remember which commentary stated it this way. And all things God works for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. Please note what's been there. Called according to his purpose. Who does it work good for? Those who are called, there's calling. According to whose purpose? His purpose. In context, the all things are the affliction that God uses to conform believers to the image and glory of God. Christ. Everybody got that? So, 
Two things. I want to make sure you get these two things down. Before you get to the six words, what are two things you must understand? Before you get to the six words, there are two things you must understand. You must understand God's sovereignty and subjecting all of creation to vanity. Right? Everybody got that? God's sovereignty and subjecting all of creation to vanity. And number two, we must understand God's sovereignty and subjecting it and hope and working it all together for good for his purpose. Now, for God to subject it that way shows his sovereignty. For him to work it all together for his good, what is required for all of that to happen? God's sovereignty, and there's another very important word. God's providence. Now, isn't it interesting that all that all that comes before the six words deals with God's sovereignty and his power. Yes? Isn't that not interesting? Why does no one get upset about that? Because we, we love thinking of that God's working everything out for his purpose. We, nobody has any problem. But once you start talking about salvation, we get upset. And why do we get upset? Because we've got to somehow control it and we've got to be somehow a part of it. But did, did creation have any part of being subjected to it? Now you could say, well, Adam did what he did. He did, but who created Adam? Did God know what Adam was going to do? <laughs> yes. Could he have wiped creation off the face of the earth? I mean, no pun intended. He could have gotten rid of earth after Adam messed up. Did he not? No. Why didn't he? So who's, who's in charge? God, so here's what we're going to do. We're just going to give a refresher course this morning before we get to the six words on this idea of God's providence. All right? And why do you think we have to do this? Why do you think this needs to precede the six words? Well, because this is important. If and, until we, we can't get into the six words until we have a clear understanding of God's sovereignty and providence. Because, because it, we cannot interpret these six words in any way that diminishes God's providence and sovereignty that was already established in the verses that came before. Does that make sense? What has been established before these six words? I've already told you. God's sovereignty and doing what? Subjecting creation to vanity and God's sovereignty in doing what? Subjecting it in hope and working all things together for good. Do you not, does that not make sense? Yes, all right. You see how this all fits together. Now, once that's established, then what flows from that understanding? Those six words. You cannot interpret the six words in a way that destroys what's already been established. You see how I'm setting this up from a logical progression of thought? So we're going to take a second and do a little work on God's providence. We're going to use uh, Grudem Systematic Theology. We could use the Westminster Confession. We could use the London Baptist Confession. We may make reference to those. All right, everybody ready? All right. 
Once we uh, understand, this is how Grudem puts it, once we understand that God is the all-powerful creator, it seems reasonable to conclude that he also preserves and governs everything in the universe as well. Would you not say that that's a pretty logical conclusion? He's the all-powerful creator. No one argues that he's the all-powerful creator. Yes? So would you conclude that he preserves and governs everything in the universe as well? You may say, yes, that makes sense. But understand, some people don't believe that makes sense. But what did we just read in Romans 8? Would, would Romans 8 seems to support that he governs and controls everything? Would have to, because he did what? He subjected it in hope, and then he works all things together for good. That would require what? Governing and controlling. Everybody got that? Okay, amen? All right, I'm trying to make sure because once we get started, we're going to have to move forward. All right. Now, the term providence itself is not found in Scripture. It has been traditionally used to summarize God's ongoing relationship to his creation. The term providence has been used to, des- to describe God's ongoing relationship to his creation. And I just messed my notes up here. You know, let's go back. Give me one second. I touched the screen and jumped 1,000 pages forward. Okay. That, that's, that's not, I got to go back to page 315. Okay. All right, here we go. I'm getting close. Do what? No, this is a no. uh, This is my notes. Okay, all right, yeah. But it's all all you got to do is touch it. It's it's pretty cool that it jumps to wherever I want it to go. All right, here we go. Everybody ready? So far, so good. So, what does providence describe? God's ongoing relationship to His creation. What does providence describe? All right, when we accept the biblical doctrine of providence, we avoid four common errors in thinking about God's relationship to creation. There are four common errors about how God relates to creation. What are these four common errors? What's the first one? All right, what is that called? Okay, deism. Teaches that God created the world and then abandoned it. Right? We, nobody believes that. Yes? Okay, no, not here. Okay, most Christians don't believe that. That God just abandoned creation. Obviously, how, what would be your best argument that he did not abandon creation after creating it? Say it. Yeah, the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have... Everlasting life. Yeah, if you believe in Christ and you believe that he came to die, then clearly you don't believe in deism, right? Now that, listen, I'm trying to build a logical argument that's going to put you in a position that you're only going to be able to come to one conclusion before this is all over, all right? So that destroys deism. What's another thing it would destroy? Pantheism, which teaches what? That creation does not have a real distinct existence in itself, but is only part of God. 
right? Say that, ask that again. Okay, a pantheism teaches that the creation does not have a real distinct existence in itself, but is only part of God. Do what? The rock is God, God is the rock. God is in everything. God is the tree, the tree is God. Very kind of, not, not exactly maybe that kind of thing, but there was a pantheistic aspect to it, yes. All right, everybody got that? Providence teaches that God is actively related to and involved in the creation. At each moment, creation is distinct from him. Moreover, the biblical doctrine does not teach that. Uh, okay, yeah, all right. So that, so we got, we got those two. There's, there's more we could say there, but I don't want to get too far. All right. So we've got, uh, what does providence seem to destroy? The idea of deism, pantheism. What else does it destroy? We'll call it randomness or chance. Okay. In other words, we don't believe everything's just happening in a random way. Again, what would destroy the idea of randomness in Romans 8? Who subjected it to vanity? Was that random? No. Did he do so in hope? Okay, that's not random. Is he working all things together for good? In other words, nothing's happening from a random chance situation. It's happening how? Through God's providence. It destroys that ra- randomness. Is that, got that? All right. It also destroys the idea of impersonal fate. The idea of, or you could call it determinism, but we'll call it impersonal fate to make sure you, we get the, I, I like that phrase better than determinism. Grudem uses uh, determinism, but he does mention impersonal fate in his uh, definition. And impersonal fate is, oh, it's just fate. That's just the way it works. That's just, no, we don't believe in an impersonal fate. We believe in a personal God working all things out for his purpose and his glory and his honor. So providence destroys these ideas. What, what, what does providence destroy? Deism, pantheism, randomness, and impersonal fate. Destroys that. Everybody got that? Now, why is that important? Because you cannot later, when you get into Romans 8, and you start dealing with these six words, come up with some idea that is more in line with one of those things than with the biblical idea. Because we, this is how Christians, like, like, they, they love God being creator, yes. They love God determining to send his son, yes. They love God uh, maybe intervening at different times in history, like, you know, when he delivered uh, Israel from Egypt. But when it comes to a person's salvation, where do they want God in regards to a person's salvation? On the sideline, doing what? Cheering. Come on, come on, come on. Accept my son, come on, please, come on. But not doing anything about it. Because what, what do they claim? What can God supposedly never overcome? A person's will. Which is just bizarre because who would have given them the will? So if he gave them the will, he, it's his will, right? You know what I'm saying? Like that, the whole thing just becomes, so they, so now, which, what, what have we already seen in Romans 8 of God overcoming? The will of creation, because he subjected it to vanity and not according to their will. Is that not what the text says? But isn't it funny when it comes, did, 
Did God overcome the will of Egypt? Did he ask Pharaoh, hey, what would you like to do? <laughs> no, he, he brought plagues upon them. Yeah, I mean, over and over and over, God imposed his will upon people. Did he not? Did Jonah have a lot of will in what he wanted to do? It didn't really work out that way, right? When, Paul, when God struck Saul down on the road to Damascus and made him blind, who was he, whose will was he overriding? Saul's will, right? Over and over and over, we, we see that. So I just want to make sure we, we realize that it, it's only in this area where people get really nervous and scared and thinking that I don't know what. All right, so here's, here's how we're going to define God's providence. You ready? This comes from Grudem. We define God's providence as follows. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he does the following. All right, so let's get that first part down. We define God's providence as God as being what? Continually involved with all created things in such a way that he does the following things. Right. Tell me when you're ready. We define God's providence as follows. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that, number one, he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. He keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Basically, what is that saying? Everything exists and continues to exist because of what reason? God. Yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, the earth. Yeah, wait, I get it. Yeah, everything exists because of God. God's maintaining it, He's keeping it. All right. Number two cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. What does that imply? What does that imply? There's not a molecule that's just acting on its own thing. God is controlling and guiding every molecule under his providence and sovereignty. In other words, there's no what in this, in this concept. There's no rebel molecule. There's no rebel molecule. It's acting the way it does. Why? Because of God. It's doing what it's doing because of what? God. Everything that's operating the way it does is God. Which seems to make sense, right? Because when we talk about the probability of life on this planet and how just, like, if this didn't work, if this this chemical wasn't there and if the sun wasn't here and if this wasn't there and if this didn't turn this way, if everything doesn't work just there's no life on earth. The probability of life being on earth is just some 
that nobody can even really explain it. Like, they don't even like, how did it happen? So that's why they, we keep spending billions and zillions of dollars to go to Mars or anywhere else because we got to figure out if we, if we can find that there's life somewhere else, then at least life here won't be considered unique. Now, it still creates a different problem. Right? Because if you find life there, what's the question? How did it get there? So no matter how many billions of dollars the taxpayers are willing to pay on space exploration, which I still don't understand why we're willing to pay anything for that, we use all that money to fix the problems here instead of going to look for how it all started there. I don't need, I don't need to care. I don't care how it started. I got to preserve what's here. It's just, just don't even get me started. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the space program. Okay. But uh, billions of dollars to go drive around on the moon and a rover or, or in the, on Mars on a rover to dig in the dirt and go, look, look, there's some evidence of ancient life. Woohoo. What a good investment. Yay. Okay. All right. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of that. But from a biblical perspective, everything operates according to whom? God. God is cooperating with it. And how, is, how did we re, uh, state that? And he is cooperating with every created thing, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Number three, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. He directs everything to fulfill his purpose. So according to this, all things work together for his purpose, right? For good to them that are called according to his purpose, right? Everything works according to his purpose. Is it your purpose? No. Is it your likes? Is it your dislikes? Guess who doesn't really have anything to say about it? Us. Us. Not that we don't always like that, do we? Right now, that's so. Let's go through that definition again. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that what does He do? What's number one? He keeps everything existing and maintaining properties which He created them. Number two, cooperates with every created thing that is doing what? Directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Number three, directs them to fulfill His purpose. If you remove one of that, then what do you ultimately have in creation? God is not in control and not directly involved. So you end up with some of those previous problems, right? Deism or one of those previous problems, right? Or you have things working according to what? Just randomness or some blind fate. We supposedly as Christians, we, we reject all of that. But where do we almost acknowledge that? In salvation. According to most Christians, salvation is what? It's not directed by God, right? So then it's based off what? It's random, yes? Random chance based off what someone may or may choose or not choose. There's no, so then can God be working all things according to a plan? Because that, he would have to have his hands, you see where you end up in a, if you're not careful, you begin to destroy the doctrine that you've already established. You can't have one doctrine that contradicts another doctrine. Does that, make, does that make sense? You see why I'm doing this before we get to those six words? All right. Hopefully you understand why I'm doing this. Okay. Now, this is very important. Under the ca- category of providence, right? Under the category of providence, we have three subtopics that we're going to kind of look at. All right? Here are the three subtopics under the category of providence. You ready? 
Preservation, concurrence, and government. Preservation, concurrence, and government. Now, I'm going to read exactly what uh, Grudem had. Do you need me to repeat that? What are three things we're going to look at? Preservation, concurrence, and government. All right? I think everyone knows what preservation means, right? I think everybody knows what government means, right? So they'll probably the one you're probably thinking about is which one? Concurrence, which we'll have to look at in a minute. All right? We shall examine each of these separately. This is what Grudem says. Then considering different views and objections to the doctrine of providence. It should be noted that this doctrine in which there has been substantial disagreement among Christians since the early history of the church, particularly with respect to God's relationship to the willing choices of moral creatures. In this chapter, we will first present a summary of the position favored in this textbook, which is often called the Reformed view, then we will consider the arguments made uh, from another position, which is commonly called the Arminian view. Now, here's what I want you to see. That just brought in two words, right? Calvin, Calvinism and Arminian, right? Or Reformed and Arminian. Now, here's what I want you to see. Everyone thinks the Calvinistic uh, Arminian argument begins with talking about salvation. Where does it really begin? God's providence. I will argue again, the verses preceding the six words demonstrate what things about God, without even considering Calvin or Arminian. What do they demonstrate? Sovereignty and doing what? I gave you two points. I gave you two points to write down. God's sovereignty and subjecting creation in vanity against the will of the creation. Everybody remember that? And then number two, subjecting it in hope and working all things for good. Those two things require what? God's sovereignty, his power. Is it not showing him involved in creation? Yes. Is it not showing him exercising his will in creation? Yes, is it not showing his ability to control not only the beginning of a situation, but the outcome of the situation? That seems to show him doing what? Governing it. Yes? Do you see why that's so important? If you get that right, I think the six words are not controversial. If you get this wrong, the six words are controversial. Everyone takes these six words and forgets what came before it. So that's why we're doing it this way. All right, now, let's look at preservation. All right, everybody ready? God ke- Under preservation, you can write this, God keeps all created things existing and maintaining the properties which, and with, with which he created them. You've already got that down in your definition, right? Yes? Okay. There is, pro- there is a preservation. He keeps all created things existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. What would be some scriptures you would use for this? What would be some scriptures you would use to teach this doctrine? There's at least two. There's at least two. All right, I'll just give them to you. Okay, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. 
Everybody go to Hebrews chapter 1. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm just going to try to get us through this as quickly as possible. All right. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. All right. Everybody there. Let's go back to verse 1 so that everybody has context. Hebrews 1, 1. Everybody there? God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Stop right there. Why is that significant? Well, if God is speaking to people, that demonstrates what? That he's involved with his creation, does it not? And if he's speaking, he's speaking probably what? Knowledge, demonstrating that God has knowledge about things he wants people to know. Yes? You see how this fits with with everything we've been talking about? All right. He hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Now let's stop right there. What's required to appoint uh, his Son as the heir of all things? Sovereignty, because he has to be, have what? The power over all things to be able to give them to his Son, yes? And why does he have the power to do this? He created all things. Everybody got that? Yes? Okay, verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholdeth all things by the word of his power which he by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So what does this demonstrate? That he's doing what with all things? Upholding, uphold, you can just use the, the word of the text, upholding all things, upholding it. If he's upholding all of it, does that mean he's involved with it? Yes. Does that mean he's maintaining it? Yes. Does that mean he's pre- uh, preserving it? Yes. Does that fit that definition we've already given? God keeps all created things existing and maintaining the properties from which he created them. What would be another passage we would look at? Oh, there we go. I was hoping someone would get that one. All right. Go to Colossians. Good job, Seth. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Is it 16 or 17? Oh, we'll go 16. Yeah, 16 is important. All right. Colossians 1, 16. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him. And for him. So who created everything? God. We'll just say God, right? I mean, here is referring to Christ, but God created everything, right? And obviously one God, three distinct persons. He created everything, but he created everything for what? For a purpose. Now, if he created everything for a purpose, that would seem to indicate that who is going to control that purpose? God. Now, what if he created all things for his purpose and he's going to make sure his purpose is accomplished, are we involved in that list of things created? Yes, it would include us. And what would that also include? Could that not also include salvation? Yeah, why would it include salvation? Because we're, we're part of those things that he created. All right? Does that make sense? All right. Um, so, um, so he created all things by him, and then look at verse 17. He is before all things, and by him all things exist. All right? So, 
Um, there, there's, he has a lot here that we could talk about, but I'm not going to go through all, everything he talks about because here's the reason why. I just want you to understand that in God's providence, what do we basically understand from God's providence? That he is maintaining and holding everything together. All right? And that, that's, or we can call it the idea of preservation. So with the idea of preservation, he is maintaining and holding everything together. He, if he's maintaining and holding everything together, then that demonstrates his sovereignty and his power. We've already demonstrated his sovereignty and power over everything because he subjected everything in vanity and hope. Those are, that's the starting point before we can ever get to the six words. Here's what I'll say, and we'll end with this. You cannot get to the six words and then try to do what? Destroy these concepts that are already clearly established in the previous verses. I believe the previous verses give us the doctrine of providence. If they give us the doctrine of providence, then here's the thing, and I'll end with this. And this is a question because there's going to be people listening to this who are not reformed. I'm going to leave it this. If you accept God's providence in creation, why do you reject it and salvation. Does that make sense? If you accept God's sovereignty in creation, why do you reject it in salvation? Because you've got two options when it comes to salvation. Who's sovereign? Either me or God. And if you destroy God's sovereignty in salvation, isn't that, why don't you just go back and destroy God's sovereignty in creation? There. It's why we established it this way. All right, we'll stop with that. That at least just gets us close. That gets us close. Because when we start taking those six words apart, I'm going to reference back to this again. What, what is the key? I want to just make sure you got this. What's key in understanding the six words? What two concepts? God subjecting the world in vanity against the will of creation, right? Not according to its will. And doing so in hope that all things work together for good. If you get that down, the six words are not controversial. In fact, when someone wants to argue with me about any of those six words and they don't bring up the verses that come before it, demonstrates they're not qualified to argue about the six words. Because if you accept those other two concepts, are the six words even remotely controversial? No. What should bother you more than those six words? God subjecting all of creation to vanity without any, any will of, the, of creation and then doing so in hope that he's working all things together not for your specific good, but for the good of his purpose, ultimately, right? Well, you can say, well, wait a minute, God, what about us? Well, that's, that's the whole point there. All right, we'll stop right there. We'll pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Very, very... Somewhat difficult section. It is difficult, Lord, for us to look at it maybe in that context because we're so used to just jumping into those six words. But I pray that this broader context will give us a greater understanding of these six words because these six words have something to do with everyone in this room and every person outside of this room. And we want to make sure we understand them correctly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...